Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of our Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. My name is Jeremy Leighton. I'm here with Michael Zarling. And today we're going to take a look at Romans chapters 5 through 9. Pastor Zarling, what do you want to uh, begin with in chapter 5 today? The first word. Uh, Romans 5, 1. Therefore... Uh, just that's an important word in that Paul is making a connection with the righteousness that we receive from God, justification that he talks about in the earlier verses. And then that then leads to being justified by faith and the peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse two, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice confidently on the basis of hope for the glory of God. Just he piles up words there of grace. That's a commodity that God doesn't give us just a little bit at a time. And we know it as undeserved love. But a lot of times we may think, well, God doles out a little bit of grace uh, you know, a little bit once a week, like a uh, dripping from a faucet, but rather it's like standing in the rain all the time, that we are in that grace. And that comes to us by faith, uh, that faith that's not something that we earn, uh, not something that we do on our own, but faith that's a gift from God too, given to us by the Holy Spirit, and that leads us to hope. And hope is a confidence not hoping that we have good weather, but uh, a sure confidence in that God has given us everything in Christ. The way that uh, our teacher took us through that in the seminary was he described the grace in which we now stand as a room uh, that you are in. God's grace is not like an on-off switch that... Uh, or. Pastor Zarling was just saying the dripping of a faucet uh, and and this room that is grace, the way he described it was you don't get yanked in and out of it. You're not you're not in the room and out of the room and, and back and forth. You stand in it. It's it's there all the time, all around you. So that you jogged my memory with that, with your description of the rain shower um, and uh, then Paul says this remarkable thing that is so counterintuitive. Um, we rejoice in our sufferings. So just think of that the next time that you're in a bad mood about something. Uh, you can say, isn't this great that I'm in a bad mood? Or, or not that I'm in a bad mood, but whatever the bad is causing the bad mood that is happening to you, uh, say, isn't this great? Uh, and he builds off of that to say suffering uh, produces the endurance and the endurance, the character and the character produces the hope and hope does not disappoint. Um, yeah. yeah. And I had that very, very same conversation with my daughters two weeks ago because one daughter had lost her, her bag for the military while uh, the airline lost it. And then the same day, my other daughter found out she couldn't go to the college she was planning on going to. So I talked to the other two daughters and I asked, well, what drama do you have in your life? <laughs> and then I was able to use this verse, which is very similar to what uh, James and Peter talk about. And we've discussed that suffering there as well, that, 
you know, the suffering produces perseverance and pure perseverance, uh, endurance and hope and so forth. And like the major of my daughter, Miriam, who is in the ROTC camp this last six weeks, he said, well, she's resilient. Well, you only get resilient when you go through tough times. Like I told the girls, nothing easy is ever worthwhile. You don't learn things by doing the easy thing. You learn things by going through the difficult times. And when God allows us to go through difficult times like suffering, he's teaching us something. There are thousands of sermons that you could preach on that. Uh, if you're a preacher, uh, if you're a layperson too, sharing your faith with somebody, there are lots of examples that you could talk about what a good thing suffering is. Um, but the next section, uh, speaking of sermons, reminds me of one that uh, my dad preached one time when I was a kid. Uh, my dad's a retired pastor, and um, he talked about how uh, if speaking of military things, if you're um, in a battlefield situation, you might say to yourself, I, I would throw I would throw my body on a live grenade in order to save my buddies. But why is that? It's because they're your buddies. They, they've done something or they've been a certain kind of person to you that makes you willing to sacrifice your life for them. Uh, and. Paul says in verses uh, 6 through 11 that uh, the crazy thing is that Christ sacrificed himself for wicked people who had no love for him. Yeah, I was going to bring up that exact verse too, that uh, last week I saw a video of a Michigan police officer driving up to an accident on the freeway. The car was on fire with the driver trapped in the vehicle. Uh, Officer Polly leapt out of his car. He raced to the burning vehicle, opened up the door, and dragged the unconscious driver to safety. So he put himself in harm's way. That's verses 6 and 7 in action. But then we consider, like you said, what Jesus did, running into the burning landscape of hell to rescue us. Not unconscious victims, but active and conscious enemies of God still fighting against him. And yet Jesus went into action to save us. And the, the following verses 9 through 11 make the point that if that's what God did when we were his enemies, uh, do you have to have any kind of worry or trepidation about God finishing the work of saving you and, and keeping you in the saving faith? Uh, if ever you are concerned about, you know, maybe I might fall away or maybe I might become an unbeliever. Uh, if God justified you when you were his active enemy, like Pastor Zarling said, then how much more isn't aren't you going to be saved uh, through God's uh, means of grace the rest of your life? And then he talks about how Adam and Christ have an effect on all people. That uh, we had been born in Adam's sin because of Adam's sin. Now we're all sinners doomed to hell, but because of Christ, the second Adam, he undoes everything the first Adam did. And he groups us all in together. Uh, and there I was thinking about when I was coaching grade school soccer for the girls that, are, that I had a rule with them 
that there was no eye rolling because, you know, teenage girls, they like to roll their eyes if they disagree with something. And I told them, if you think that you're going to roll your eyes, just close them. Because if I see you roll your eyes, and if I even think that you are rolling your eyes, you and everyone else around you are doing monster laps. And a monster lap is running up the steps to the mezzanine of our gym, down the steps, and around the gym. But I made it so that if one of them was guilty, they were all guilty. Mm-hmm. They didn't like that very much. Yeah. But when we did gophers, and a gopher is running a, a quarter of the basketball court and then back to the end line, to the half, back to the end line, and so forth. And then I would run that with them, and if any one of them could beat me, then they all beat me. Okay, But then they liked it that they were all grouped together. So... What Paul is saying here is we may not like it that we're all grouped together with Paul or with with Adam in his sin and death and hell, and yet we should rejoice that we are grouped together with Jesus because he gives us forgiveness and life and salvation. Even beyond how much the the sin of Adam damned us, uh, Jesus' salvation does even more saving of us than uh, Adam's sin does the damning of us. Um, The point of this section of verses, I think, is a good one, especially when you think about creationism and uh, the the six-day creation and the battle against the theory of evolution. Um, There are a lot of people out there that think that you can be a Christian and still believe in the theory of evolution. And that might be true. You you could maybe still keep your saving faith for a while uh, and still hold on to the theory of evolution. But eventually it's going to deteriorate the faith that you have in Jesus as your savior. And this is a good example of it uh, because God compares the historical person of Jesus to the historical person of Adam. And if we're not clear on who Adam was, if Adam was just a figurative or metaphorical character, uh, that he wasn't a real person in the Bible with a real historic timeline, uh, well, then that is going to muddy up the waters of who Jesus is and what he did to save us. And what he did to save us is best described, I think, in the closing verse, verse 20, uh, that uh, just as... uh, Oh, there, yeah, where sin increased, grace overflowed much more. And uh, that was taught to me uh, with the picture of a balloon that like if a if your sin is a balloon, the balloon keeps getting bigger, doesn't it? You keep blowing it up and blowing it up. Uh, but here God's grace is illustrated as a uh, hole in the ground that that hides or, or cover or uh, uh, makes the balloon go away. And no matter how big the balloon gets, the hole in the ground is constantly getting bigger. Now, that leads very nicely into chapter 6, where uh, Paul asks, okay, if the hole that is God's grace is always getting bigger and bigger, then why don't we make this balloon of sin get as big as it possibly can so that God's grace will get as big as it possibly can? Uh, and and that's that's where we, it leads into chapter six. Yeah, he asks, "What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase?" And every time I read that verse, I think of a grandmother that had her grandson in her school, and she said, "Pastor, I don't know what to do with my grandson anymore." Her grandson had been in our school for a number of years, and she said, 
you know, I tell my grandson, you need to stop doing that. Jesus doesn't like that. And the grandson told her, Grandma, I can do whatever I want because Jesus will just forgive me. And so this was a, a second or third grader telling us this. Okay, so what Paul is questioning here of the Romans 2,000 years ago, it's on the minds of even our children. Uh, but Paul goes on to say, absolutely not, exclamation point. And he says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And that died to sin. Think about if you've ever had someone say to you, you're dead to me. Well, the person who says you're dead to me, that person is abusive and manipulative. You don't want to be around that person anymore. Paul says that when you were baptized, sin said to you, you're dead to me. And it is abusive and manipulative. And what do we do? Because of our sinful nature, we go back into that abusive, manipulative relationship. And, and the whole point of getting washed, getting just physically cleaned up is that you stay clean. Uh, obviously, it's going to happen that you get dirty again and, and you need washing. But Paul's point here is that the whole idea behind getting baptized was getting free of that deadly abusive relationship. Uh, so you were washed into a new life with Christ. Uh, there's no reason for you to go back to the old life. So I guess that's what I would say to the little, uh, what did you say? Third grader Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you, you were, you were raised with Jesus. And this, this is where I also, you know, last, last episode, I got a little bit comic book geeky with a comparison to Iron Man. This is, this is one where, uh, this, the scripture pretty clearly, uh, talks about a, a time space warp. Um, and, and I, this is how I like to teach it too, that your baptism, it, that water is actually a portal. It's not just a symbol or a representation of the portal. It is the portal itself that takes you back to Jesus' death and burial so that the old you was hanging on the cross in Christ's body. The old you was buried in Christ's grave. And uh, when Christ came out of the grave, that was that was kind of like you coming back. It was you. It wasn't just like you. It was you coming back through the portal and out of the water uh, as a new person um, to live a new life. That's that's what Paul says in these verses. So now all I have in my my vision is the end of Avengers Endgame and all those portals. That's right. That Doctor Strange opened up for all the heroes to come back. That's right. It, that, that is baptism. And I I am dead serious about this. This is, uh, you know, Stargate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is what... Um, this is the way that Paul writes about baptism here. He doesn't say we were therefore symbolically buried with him by this baptism or this baptism is a metaphor for us being buried with him. He says, no, you were really buried with him into this death and raised from the dead through the glory of the father to a walk in a new life. So let's walk through that portal. In verses uh, six and seven, he says, we know their old self was crucified with him. And then, you know, like you said, being buried in sin. So we, we connect our baptism 
with Christ's crucifixion. And Roman crucifixions were reserved for the worst of criminals. And the worst of criminals is residing in each of us. That's our sinful nature, our old Adam. And the waters of baptism kill our old Adam. They nail it to Christ's cross. All of our self-centeredness and apathy, misplaced priorities, filthy speech, lust, they're spread out and crucified. We put them to death. We bury our old self in the watery grave of our baptism. And this is an important concept for us as Lutheran Christians to understand because a lot of Christians think that you can just reform our sinful nature or improve our old Adam, but you can't reform or improve it. We can't fix what's broken inside of us. The only way to improve in Christian living is to put our sinful nature to death, crucify it, drown it, bury it under the water. And this happens daily when we remember our baptism, when you confess your sins, whether in private, in your personal prayers, or in, uh, in corporate worship, uh, when you receive absolution from the pastor, from your teacher, from a spouse, when you come to the Lord's table to receive that sacrament, then you are crucifying, confessing, drowning, burying your old Adam in those baptismal waters. This uh, section of verses, the first 15 verses of, or no, 11 verses of chapter six, uh, I've preached many sermons on them and uh, they're very near and dear to me. Uh, not the least reason uh, because uh, they're, they're part of the small catechism, the, the fourth part of baptism talks about the daily use of it, which is what Pastor Zarling just did. Uh, but uh, I, I've just got two quick stories. One of them is that uh, one time I preached this sermon, f- I preached this for a funeral sermon, and uh, I asked the family of the deceased uh, woman to uh, see if they could find her baptismal certificate, and they did end, end up finding it. It was with um, her high school diploma and a college degree that she had earned. And I thought, now that is an interest. And I mentioned it in the sermon. I thought that's an interesting place to keep your baptismal certificate, because what is it that you do with degrees? We, in the business world, we talk about making use of your degree. You use your degree for something. And that's what we want to do with our baptisms is make use of it. Um, but then the other one was for a wedding. Uh, it was actually my brother-in-law's wedding uh, and his wife. Uh, and we just saw them recently. But verse 11 is really the best way to apply it in a marriage. Because uh, what do you do when people get married? You, you always want to give tips to the newlyweds about here's your, you know, here's your tips for uh, a happy marriage. Well, here's Paul's tip, because guess what? In the whole book of Romans, the first time that Paul ever uses a command word, he tells you to do something, it's in verse 11. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't give any imperatives or, or demanding words until verse 11. And here's, here's the first one. It is consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's, that's an interesting way to go about life. Don't worry about your actions. First and foremost, start by considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, your story about Uh, funerals and baptism, that's what I do in every funeral that I I conduct, is I ask the family for the baptismal date 
and the location of the baptism of their loved one. Because what I do is I remind the family, I said, I'm not going to tell stories about your loved one in the sermon. You know the stories better than I do. I'm going to tell the story of Jesus in the life of your loved one, of how he brought, uh, say, Jimmy into his flock. And he did that through the sacrament of baptism. And this happened at this church on this date when the pastor poured water and word over his head. And then because of that, then we lead to the confirmation when the past, when that, when Jimmy stood in front of the altar and the baptismal font and made his vows of faithfulness to the Lord, returning the vows of faithfulness God made to him in baptism. And then uh, weddings and, and so forth. But it all begins with God making his promise to Jimmy and whomever the deceased is at baptism. That that was when God chose him and brought him into the flock as a lamb that is in the good shepherd's arms. The closing verses of chapter six uh, talk a lot. I'm going to kind of summarize them a little bit, but the basic thought is that it talks about being slaves and that the fact is there, there's no such thing as, uh, or that, that free will is really an illusion. Um, before you're a believer, you are a slave to Satan and sin. And then after you're a believer, uh, the natural thing that you want to do is offer yourself as God's slave. And that's basically the point of uh, verses uh, 12 through 23, that uh, your body was a, a slave that said, I will do whatever sin tells me to do. But now you, you have the freedom to offer your body and, and your body parts as servants of God and uh, carrying out his righteous acts. And then uh, the chapter ends with that uh, well-known verse that's worth memorizing if you haven't already, for the wages of sin is death, but the undeserved gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, so I, I don't know if you had other things you wanted to discuss in chapter six, but that kind of makes a nice uh, transition to chapter seven. Right. And in chapter seven, Paul says that we are freed from that sin by being connected to Christ. And he says that, you know, maybe we should just, people might argue you should get rid of the law. And, uh, you know, I've had people that have talked about that with me, you know, listened to my sermons and they said, you know, pastor, you preach a lot of law in your sermons. Well, in talking with them, I learned that they were antinomian. And what that means is that they were against the law, that they were feeling that, be, and they've said this to me, that now that we're Christians, we don't need the law. We can just have the gospel. But Paul says in these verses, we still need the law because the law, first of all, is a mirror to show us our sins. And then once we repent of the sins and receive the gospel that gives us forgiveness, and shows us our Savior, then we use the law as a guide. And then the law is always useful both for Christians and non-Christians as a curb. But the key is the law is always good and useful, and we need the law in our sermons, in the way we talk to our children in school, and so forth. Paul illustrates this point with a, a sort of a metaphor or a picture uh, from marriage. And, and he says that uh, 
if a if a woman is still if her husband is still alive and she marries another man, she's considered an adulteress. And uh, but if her husband dies, then uh, she's free to marry another man. And uh, that is that's kind of the uh, getting back to the illustration that Paul had before of being dead to sin. That um, we we don't get rid of the law. It's it's sort of like there is a, a new guiding principle. I don't want to say a new law because God's law doesn't change, uh, but there's a new guiding principle, and that is that um, the old sinful you, the old sinful me, died, and uh, so now uh, we are set free to serve uh, to serve God. And when you said getting rid of sin, that reminded me of. I think the culture we're living in right now, uh, the culture we're living in right now is all about getting rid of the law. And what happens when you get rid of law? Then the sinful nature runs rampant. And that's what you see in our culture right now. That's what you saw in ancient Corinth and Rome. So Paul's argument here is not that our sinful nature is, is not that the the law and the commandments are wrong. He says it's our sinful nature that's wrong. He says, uh, is the law sin? Because you could think that, well, we're always breaking it. We can't do anything but break it. Uh, So maybe the problem is with the law. And, And he says, absolutely not. Uh, the law is a good thing. It actually it actually tells me what's right and wrong. Like Pastor Zarling was saying, it's a it's a curb. Uh, at least it's a it stops society from breaking out in uh, the utter chaos. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about these verses uh, that Paul describes uh, with um, seven and eight. Uh, because this this has been something that I think about a lot, especially when we talk about racial issues. And um, I, I don't want to get myself into any trouble, but I do want to uh, make some applications because uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, th- there are a lot of voices out there today saying, don't be a racist. And uh, that's a good thing to say. And, and we, shouldn't st- we should not stop saying it at all. Uh, but I also want everybody to realize what happens when you say that to somebody. Um, don't be a racist, they will either begin patting themselves on the back because they can think of lots of examples when they weren't a racist or they were the opposite of a racist, or they will uh, do the opposite, which is what Paul says here when he says uh, that, oh, I guess it wasn't verses seven and eight. I should look no, down No, verse a eight, bit. but sin seizing the opportunity provided by this commandment produced every there kind you of go. sinful desire. It was verse eight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, uh, so when when somebody says to me, don't be a racist, I will either begin patting myself on the back for all the times that I was culturally sensitive, or I will say to myself, you just told me not to be a racist. You know, the very f- first thing I want to do right now is be as racist as I possibly can be. Uh, and that's what the law does to our sinful nature. It it takes it it, it gives us opportunities to show how bad we are. And then going on to the the concluding verses of this chapter is Paul is talking about the struggle that we have with sin. Uh, Pastor Lightning, have you ever seen the movie The Thing? No. Man, you got to get out and see some of these movies. I don't think so. It's it's one of the great 
science fiction horror movies right up there with Alien and Aliens. But in John it's Carpenter... It's not It. Like, I've seen It, but that's, that's not that's the not, thing. That's not the thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the thing in John Carpenter's movie, uh, you've got U.S. researchers that are in Antarctica, and they find the remains of a strange creature that the Norwegian research team had burned. The whole team is dead. And they see, the Americans see the the Norwegians in a helicopter chasing down this dog and shooting at it. Well, they're wondering why that is. Well, they don't understand that the dog has this alien living inside of it that uh, then can take the form of any living creature. And so now you've got all of these American researchers that are trapped, you know, hundreds of miles away from any other civilization in Antarctica. And one of them is not a real person. It's taken on the form of this thing, this virus. Uh, And this made me think of that movie when I was reading Paul's talk, talking about the struggle we have living inside of us, that we have that thing inside of us that's different than it should than what should be there that God created us to be perfect but because of Adam's sin we're imperfect now we've got this thing living inside of us and now we've been baptized and we're supposed to be different than what we are now but we keep reverting back to that horrific thing that lives inside of us well I hope they all you know, they could have just solved the problem by all uh, wearing masks and social distancing. They could have done that, I guess. Yeah, so the movie ends uh, whether you're just wondering if the thing got out or not. But we, you, we, you won't spoil that for us. No, that's the way it ends. So you don't oh. know. Oh, okay. You can make up your own ending, more or less. I mean, it's only like a 30 or 40-year-old movie, so if I spoil the ending, <laughs> it, it's been out there for a while. I guess. Um uh, the, this is this is a kind of a well-known section. It's a little bit what I like to call sometimes Paul's uh, tongue twister of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's divinely inspired tongue twister. Uh, when he says, "Indeed, I I know that good does not live in me," uh, I, so I fail to do the good I want to do. Instead, the evil I do not want to do. That is what I keep doing. Uh, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who am doing it, but it is sin living in me. And I think that's what you were illustrating with the thing. It's yes. the, the sin living in me. Um, uh, one thing that I like about this translation that we're using, the EHV, is in verse 18. Uh, it says, the desire to do good is present with me, but I am not able to carry it out. And that verb for carrying it out uh, it does leave room for the fact that humans perform good deeds, at least good in a civic sense, that that we don't want humans to go around trying to do bad things. Uh, there, there can be an outward righteousness, but the problem is you can't carry it all the way out. You'll never be able to do a good deed perfectly the way that God would want it for you to be justified and forgiven. Uh, but I think there's a little bit of encouragement there that um, uh, it, it is we, we don't discourage or disparage the doing of good deeds. It's just that's not how you're made right or declared right with God. Uh, so the only uh, outcome can be uh, falling on your knees with Paul in verse 25 and saying, 
asking, who will rescue me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, and that leads us to verse, uh, chapter 8. Yeah, and so uh, we were just talking about uh, the sin that's living inside of us, that sanctification is never going to be complete here on earth. Uh, then he goes on to talk in the middle verses about living in harmony with the sinful nature, unless you want to talk about anything in those first few verses of 8. Because Romans 8, there's a lot packed in here. Uh we in the Lutheran church, we teach the doctrine of total depravity, that spiritually speaking, that nothing good lives within us. Now, there are other churches and church bodies that say that there's some kind of quality of love or uh, Niceness that it's inside of people, or at least like a neutrality that you're like a blank slate, and and you have the option to do right or wrong. Yeah. So that doctrine of total depravity. All right. So Pastor Lightning, have you ever read the book Lord of the Flies? No. All right. I'm just going to make sure I pick all these really old things you've never seen or I, read. I, I actually have a copy of it uh, that I that I was planning on reading fairly soon. I'm glad you brought it up. All right. So. The author, William Golding, wrote Lord of the Flies uh, around World War II as a response to the novel Coral Island by Robert Ballatine. So in the, in the book uh, Coral Island, there's three boys that are shipwrecked on an island, and they have all of these grand adventures while they're stranded. But Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies, thought the plot was too unrealistic and that if the boys were stranded on an island, they would not get along. They wouldn't be having all kinds of adventures. They would argue and fight just to try to survive. So basically, you can summarize both books very succinctly that in Coral Island, the author sees both sees the boys as having good in them, or at least like you said, being neutral. But in Lord of the Flies, Golding understands that these boys that are stranded have sinful natures. And as the book goes on, you can see them going deeper and deeper into chaos because they do not have the curb of the law against their sinful natures. And, and they don't have the new self, uh, which only the Holy Spirit can give through God's word. And I think maybe that's uh, that's what we're getting at with um uh, chapter eight, that uh, it, once you become a believer, uh, now there is a, an option more or less in front of you, not uh, not by your own works, but by the Holy Spirit's converting of you. Now, now you do have a, a sort of a choice between uh, continuing to let the the sinful flesh enslave you and uh, and letting letting the Spirit of of God lead you. Uh, based on his word. And uh, that that's kind of uh, what verses uh, 1 through 13 are all talking about. And uh, in verse 14 and 15, uh, he goes on to say that uh, when you're led by the Spirit of God, you are sons of God. And uh, when you have that spirit, then you also pray uh, and call out, Abba, Father. Um, and and uh, though, though it's not, you, if you are praying, you know, you talk about the, church bodies that say the sinner's prayer, for instance, um, you wouldn't be able to say the sinner's prayer unless the Holy Spirit had already uh, entered your heart and given you faith, uh, as uh, Paul teaches here in Romans 8. And when Paul uses the word 
uh, sons, that you're all sons of God by the Spirit of God. He's not saying, uh, only talking about male gender. Uh, they're the sons doesn't express gender as much as it expresses a close relationship with God, with rights to an inheritance. And then you get to call God Abba, Father, Daddy. You know, think of uh, when your kids were younger and they called you Daddy. You know, it's, it's, one, it's nice when they still call you Dad, but it's really nice when they called you Daddy. I still have one of my daughters call me Daddy, and they still call me Abba, and Father, and I when I answer the phone and so forth. And when you have that close relationship with God as your Abba and Father, you don't need to be afraid of him. We can approach him with boldness and confidence. Well, tomorrow we leave for vacation. We're going to the Smoky Mountains. And it's going to be a big family vacation that my wife Shelly and I and our four daughters, uh, Abby's husband, and then two of them with their boyfriends. And then Belle said she gets to be the ninth wheel because she doesn't have a, a male to bring along with her. So we're going hiking, maybe to a water park, zip lining, uh, all of those kind of things. And none of my girls or their significant others are afraid of me. And that's a good thing. Uh, but... Uh, they know I'm going to keep them safe. But I'll let the two boyfriends know that uh, I'm planning on bringing the girls home safe, but uh, maybe not the boys. And that, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'll warn them and say, you know, you don't have to worry about the black bears in the Smoky Mountains so much. You just need to worry about Papa Bear. <laughs> if you do anything to make my girls cry this week, then you need to be worried. But, uh, you know, because I let them all know that God's love is unconditional. Mine is not. Mm. Okay. That uh, God, we can approach because we are sons and daughters. And so we can approach him with confidence. And once those boys are adopted into our family through marriage, well, then uh, I'll be that loving father to them that they can approach with loving and uh, with boldness and confidence until then though they better watch out so what you're saying is that you want your daughters to call you Abba and you want them to call you Sir Amen <laughs> uh I, I like in this chapter how Paul uh, talks about creation and, and what you just described is uh, a time when you and your family are going to get to go out and uh, enjoy God's beautiful creation. And you might think, well, uh, isn't this all kind of pointless because on the last day, God is going to burn all this up. He's going to uproot the mountains and, and uh, the planets and stars are going to go crashing into the sea and uh, all sorts of chaos and upheaval. Um, actually, the creation doesn't look at it that way. Uh, Paul says the creation sort of takes on a persona of, it, of itself. And uh, it, the, cre- the, the animals, the, there's, here's another funeral sermon I preached one time. Uh, I, I took on the persona of uh, one of the deceased's cats. Oh, my. Uh, and and I, I pretended to write a letter as the cat would, would view it. Uh, because, and my text was this, it was Romans eight, uh, because it, all of creation is groaning. Uh, the creatures didn't like it, that they had to be subjected to, 
um, uh, sinfulness. It was the head of creation. It was the mankind that uh, ruined God's creation. And uh, the the creatures are looking forward to the day when uh, the last believer will be converted. Because as soon as the last believer is converted, that's when God will renew his creation. And until that happens, the, the creatures are groaning. And it's debated whether this new heaven and new earth that Paul talks about, uh, Peter talks about, John talks about in Revelation, whether it's going to be something completely new, made out of new material, or it's going to be rebuilt from recycled ruins of the present universe. But it sounds like in this section, Paul favors the latter. I just wanted to uh, touch on verse 28 because that's a, a well-known and beloved verse. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, and uh, I, there's a, another Wells podcast that I like to listen to from time to time uh, where I heard something interesting about that verse. Uh, a pastor and a layman uh, do this podcast and uh, this this pastor said that he has heard, and he's in a position where he would know this type of thing, uh, he has heard that there are families out there who have taken years to recover from a pastor or uh, a well-intentioned layperson who used verse 28 to try to comfort them. And uh, I wonder if you, you're nodding, so you know what I'm talking about. What, what exactly does that mean? I've heard the same kind of things. I was going to say that too. Don't use Romans 8, 28 when someone's uh, going through suffering right then and there. Uh, the, the wounds are too raw. You mm. know, use other things. You know what you're talking about. Well, God will work this all out. Well, that's not what they want to hear right now. Point them to the cross. Point them to the end result. But right now it's it's hard. And, and tell them that... Try don't t- yeah don't don't try to tell them anything. Just let them know that that you are feeling you're trying your best to feel whatever pain they are feeling. Uh, it, it 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 would be a better thing later on to to point out. Look at how God has worked this out for good. Uh, something like that. And uh, and then the chapter. Con- well, yeah, oh, be- go ahead. Before you go on, yeah, I think there a story I often tell of Romans eight twenty eight is Carol uh, that. Carol's husband died in a horrific car accident when she was living in Michigan. And it was such a bad car accident that all of the majority of Carol's bones, legs and arms were replaced. The bones replaced with titanium. She lost several inches in her body and her height. She ended up living down in Radcliffe, Kentucky, where I was pastor with her son who was taking care of her. And, in her funeral sermon, I mentioned the accident, but because of the accident, Carol lived with her son, John. John had to bring her to church. He became uh, converted, as she did, becoming Wells. And then he was our treasurer, brought Cindy, uh, the wife. Uh, the three adopted children were baptized and confirmed. The grandchild was baptized. And all of this happened because of that car accident. Now, I could say that like a decade or more later Mm. and look back. But if I would have been Carol's pastor in the hospital and said, oh, don't worry, God has a really good plan for you. You know, your husband died and you're in in a coma for several months. Mm. That's that's not the right time to share that verse. Sure. Yeah. Uh, 
it, I think the other thing that this chapter does is it just decimates the uh, prosperity gospel. Um, and, and by prosperity gospel, I mean uh, people who use the name of Jesus or the message of the gospel in order to say, uh, if, if you follow all the right steps, your life on this earth will be uh, happy-go-lucky. It'll only get better. You'll get rich and, and wealthy and everything will go well for you. Uh, you find just the opposite in this chapter. And uh, particularly with things like verse 36, for your sake, when you have faith in Jesus, uh, for Jesus' sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet, the next verse says, uh, that reality doesn't change the fact that we are hyper-conquerors. We're more than conquered. I don't know how that's even possible. If you're in a soccer match, you're either the winner or the loser. Uh, you, you can't be more than the winner. But uh, this is actually what Paul is saying here. Uh, in all these things, we are more than the winner through him who loved us. And that term there that Paul uses for super victorious or more than victorious, that's the only time that word is used in the Greek language in the Bible. Uh, it's the word nikeo, or where we get the word Nike from. Okay, And it means more than victorious. That And... That's because Jesus is connecting us to his super victory. That as our victor, he conquered our sins of worry, fear, doubt with his perfect life and his innocent death. He crushed the ancient serpent's head under his bruised heel. He overcame death when he walked out of the grave on Easter morning. So he has been super victorious over the unholy trinity of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. And no one else has overcome like that. And now Paul says, he gives you that super victory. We go back to baptism. He gives you that super victory through absolution. He gives you that super victory when you hear his gospel. He gives you that super victory in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so uh, in all of those gifts, you are more than victorious. Nothing will be able to separate you uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, chapter nine. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I want to say one word yet with go ahead. Uh, those last few verses. And it really is one word. Uh, my wife, Shelly, makes these beautiful uh, pictures for our, our confirmands. And she takes her confirmation verse and then uh, she stamps cards and she has this nice framed picture and she brought up one of them and she has one verse or one word that sums up a verse and she said what one word can i use to sum up uh our confirmands verse that was 38 through 39 for i'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor rulers neither things present nor things to come nor powerful forces neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord and I told her, just use the word nothing. You know, nothing can separate you. There's not a single thing that is more powerful than our super victorious Christ. That, that was more than one word. I know, but it was, it was all summed up in the word nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being snarky for the sake of being snarky. Uh, so uh, Pastor Zarling and I have been kind of dancing around uh, chapter nine, and uh, now we've got 
oh, I'm going to say maybe four minutes to get through it. Uh, and, and I'm going to hold us to that four minutes. Uh, but it, it's, there's a lot of uh, tough things that Paul says in chapter nine. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a tough little nut to crack. But uh, with the Holy Spirit's help, we ask for God's blessing to unravel it. And uh, he begins by talking about uh, something truly astounding. Um, he says, I almost wish in verse three that I myself could be cursed and separated from Christ in place of my brothers, my relatives, according to the flesh. Uh, a really clear cut way to put that would be, I, I wish I, I could, I would almost wish that God would send me to hell if it would make, if it would mean sending somebody else to heaven. He doesn't say he, he doesn't say he does wish that. He says, I could almost wish that. And uh, that's a pretty powerful, uh, mission-minded uh, sentiment to have. Yeah, and then he goes on to talk about some, like you said, some very difficult things of what we would call predestination. You know, why was Jacob chosen and Esau not? Why was Moses and the Israelites chosen and Pharaoh not? And... Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast, you know, we as Lutheran Christians believe in predestination, that God chose those whom he was going to save before the creation of the world. But we do not believe in double predestination. That's the Calvinists, that God chose some to be saved and chose others to be damned. Because if that were the case, then God is, God is the author of evil, right. then God does not mean it when he says, uh, I do not desire the death of the wicked, because he actually does desire that people go to hell. Then God was lying to us when he said, uh, God wants all men to be saved, because he didn't want all men to be saved, he wanted some to be sent to hell. Uh, so the Bible does not teach a double predestination. Um I think what makes it tough is that verse, a couple of verses in here almost sound like he does teach a double predestination. Uh, but I, th I think it's important to, to see that um, it's never put so directly and explicitly that you, that you could believe that. Uh, that you would trust in something like that. Um, it, Paul leaves it more like this. In verse 22, what if God, although he, although he wanted to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with great patience the objects of wrath ripe for destruction? Uh, and he, he, he does it more like, what if? What if God decided to send some people to hell ahead of time uh, before the world began? What if God uh, did double predestine people? And I think the argument there is, that that's not what happened, but what if it did happen? Are we in any position to say that God did something wrong? Uh, that's really the, the point of the matter. Uh, we are the creatures, he's the creator, and if he had decided to d do double predestination, we, we would not be in any position to question it. Uh, but thankfully, these verses never uh, go so far as to say, God picked people to be sent to hell before they even had a chance or were created. Right, and so Pastor Light and I were talking about this beforehand, the way I, I mentioned it, to him, I'll bring it up here, is with Esau, for example, he says pretty powerful words, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Well, what he's saying there is that Esau got what he deserved, not because God put it on him, but because God gave Esau grace 
and he didn't want it. He rejected it. But Jacob didn't get what he deserved, not because he was so good, but because God gave it to him as a gift. And it's the same with Pharaoh. God gave grace to Moses and the Israelites to be saved, to be the children of God. But God gave that same grace to Pharaoh time and time again, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He didn't want to listen to what God had to say. And finally, God's patience ran out, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He said, I will give you what you want. What you've been asking is, you've been acting like somebody who wants to be hardened, so now I'm going to give you that hardening. I'm going to make it impossible for you to be converted, even uh, if you could be. And, and with that, the way I describe hell in sermons is, is not that God sends people to hell. I tell them, God gives people what they want, like you said, is God has given them every opportunity to be saved. He even sent his son to save them, as Paul said earlier, to save the ungodly. And yet they rejected it and they chose hell. And so God is not going to force anyone to worship him for eternity. He gives them what they want. And so he allows them to go to hell, the one place in creation that he is not present so they don't have he's to not, worship him. He's not present with his grace and forgiveness. He's present there. It's just he's present with his wrath and punishment. Right. Um, the, the reason that I've kind of been dancing around on this chapter is because it's it plays in uh, quite a bit to a book that I've been reading. It was a book written by Martin Luther called The Bondage of the Will. And he deals with several verses from this chapter. Um, and he makes a point, uh, Luther does, that uh, he's trying to prove that our will, it, our uh, nature, our human nature is naturally depraved and enslaved to sin. Uh, in contrast to the medieval Catholic teaching that uh, there's a little spark of goodness in you. And uh, that's that's kind of like modern evangelicals today that uh, say you need to make a decision for Christ. Uh, Luther says, no, your will is enslaved to sin, Satan, and hell. And as he's, as he's uh, kind of explaining these verses, uh, I want to see if I can capture the thought that he expressed so well. Um, we hear what Paul say, what if God decided to send people to hell uh, and, and predestined them to eternal damnation before they even had a chance to believe or were created? What if God decided to do that? We jump up and say, uh, that's unfair, that's unfair. And we never bother once to look at the other side of the coin, which says, God decided and predestined people to be saved, even though they don't deserve it. And, uh, and what Luther basically says is, oh, we're okay with that. <laughs> we're, we, we, uh, we, we have no problem with God being gracious and deciding ahead of time to save those who do not deserve it. Uh, and so we're really not being fair ourselves. By, we, we should be just as outraged that God is sending people to heaven uh, before they had a chance to earn or deserve it. And uh, that's really the theme of this whole chapter. It's not that God predestined anybody to damnation. He hasn't. Uh, but the main point of this whole chapter is that uh, what God decided, he decided by grace alone. 
Um, he, d- he did not decide it based on any human merit. And that's what you see with the example of Jacob and Esau. That's what you see with the example of the potter and the clay. And that's what you see with the example of uh, Pharaoh and the Israelites in Egypt. So, dear listener, it might have felt like you stepped into one of those time portals that Pastor Lightning was talking about that his four minutes uh, that he was going to set us to, it felt probably more like 10 minutes. Uh, so it's nine right now. Yeah. So next time, uh, we're not sure exactly when the next episode is going to come out because I'll be gone on vacation, but we'll spend some more time in Rome. And since I said last time that I'm running out of the lightning puns, I'm going with superheroes and villains who have something to do with lightning. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Ray, Beta Ray Bill. That's That one's pretty obscure. You're going to have to look it up like Pastor Lightning is right now. Uh, stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.